Hola, hi everyone, and welcome to the Ondas Podcast. I am your host, Amelie Homer. And I'm so excited to bring to you our very first guest. Uh, he's an activist. He served for the Obama administration. And currently, he is the CEO and president of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. So without further ado, Marco Davis. Marco, tell me a little bit about your background and um, what, what was your journey? What was your history? Uh, I grew up in in some ways kind of arguably almost like a dual personality, right? I, because of my family heritage, um, and, and I should note, uh, my parents are not just Mexican and Jamaican, but in fact, like born and raised in their countries, right? And, right. and, and they came to the United States as adults. And so, for example, also in some ways slightly different than many, many people in the United States were of Mexican descent, um, my relationship to my Mexican heritage was actually in the country of Mexico, in the, in, in the city of Guadalajara. Throughout my childhood, our summers were spent back in Guadalajara, where Guadalajara, sadly, is actually one of the cities like uh, several parts of, of Mexico where there's actually not a large African uh, population of African descent. Right. And so, um, uh, I did not have an opportunity or even a realization to explore that side, even of Mexican heritage. The Mexican heritage was, um, uh, uh, um, uh did not have a racial component to it, shall we say, in terms of dialogue expression and some, and, and also, um, as a result for me, like I, tremendous pride and not, not surprisingly, right, in my Mexican heritage, um, but again, but without any kind of racial lens to it and different, as I was saying, from people in the U.S. in that I didn't have a connection, a strong connection growing up to a Mexican-American population in the U.S. So I didn't think about often the experience uh, or I didn't uh, interact with people who were experiencing the United States as people of Mexican descent. I was often interacting with people of Mexican descent in Mexico with a, just mm-hmm. an entirely Very different, different. Wow. Right. And so I was in New York. Interestingly, it was later as an adult that I realized I had in many ways things in common with folks from the Caribbean because there were much larger populations in New York. And the fact that we were New Yorkers and Latinos, as we came to discover, I realized at times I felt more affinity and more familiarity with, say, a Puerto Rican population or a Dominican population yeah. because yeah of the New York that sometimes that we had in common, then say someone from uh, uh, rural California or Arizona or Texas, right, who many times were multiple generations uh, of of, uh, Mexican-American descent, and it's just an entirely different culture, right, than, say, New York City. Um, So so on the one hand, I had that, and then on the other hand, through my father, the Jamaican population, again, I interacted with the African-American population. My elementary school was actually majority black. Um, it's a suburb just outside of, uh, of the Bronx, in fact, a town called Mount Vernon, right? And so I moved through the world as a fellow black student, right? And at times people were like, he's a little different, he speaks Spanish, but by and large, like so much of America, society was being viewed as really being black or white. And so I fell in the category of being with the black students, understandably. And so I um, experienced life that way and made it uh, made a concerted effort, particularly in college, um, to explore my identity, to explore my heritage, as, as often happens in, in, in mm-hmm. a, an experience like college, where you, you're given the chance to sort of study, if you will, and or interact with people who are deliberate about trying to understand their history. So long story short, I was actively involved in what was uh, known as the Chicano Student Organization, the Mexican-American Student Group, MECHA. Um, I was a good friend at sometimes an honorary member of the Puerto Rican Student Association called Despierta Boricua because I had a lot of friends uh, there. Um, 
in terms of socializing, but I also became actively involved in the black community at, at my college. And, and in fact, at one point, um, <laughs> ran for and, and, and had a leadership position in the Black Student Alliance, right? And in fact, joined the historically black fraternity. I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Um, and I did that deliberately to, again, use that as a way to explore, connect to, um, and even contribute to an understanding of that side of my heritage, of the experience of African-Americans in the United States, people of African descent in the United States, and to continue to be a part of that community, right, and to understand what it meant. And so I, I grew up with those two largely separate spheres, separate worlds, right? There was even a joke on college at one point, I feel like, that somebody once said, there was a, a humorous exchange at one point where somebody sort of said, I just figured out you're the same guy, the guy Mexican Marco in the group and that Alpha Mark guy, right? They were like, it's the same. And I was like, well, I wasn't hiding it. I wasn't, it wasn't my alter ego that I was in disguise. But like, again, it was two different social circles at times that overlapped some, but not so completely that people often saw me in different contexts uh, and thought of me in different ways, right? Given the way I showed up in those, in those communities. I mean, what do you see? I think that's phenomenal because I think you, it almost sounds like you, um, you know, we all have coping mechanisms, right? And I think you, you kind of said, okay, well, how do I, how do I take advantage of this? You know, this, it, you saw it as power, right? And how do I take it back? I, I, that's at least what I'm hearing. You may not have done it um, sort of intentionally, right? It may have been sort of a natural um, situation, but you know, what did you see as, um, or, or can you tell any stories around challenges with mm-hmm. doing that, right? And then also value outside of just, you know, you being able to make those connection yeah. points and, and those things that are so important to you culturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A great, great question. So, yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I, the way I describe it, I, like you said, I mean, I don't know that I at all was conscious about it, seeing it as a kind of a power, but I, I, for me, it was that I, 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 threw myself wholeheartedly into both communities and and committed myself and refused to allow anyone to sort of say that I didn't uh, belong there, didn't have a role there, even though, uh, as you're saying, in terms of challenges, at times there were that. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it was a fairly common thing. I can't even think of how many times it was asked where people sort of felt like, well, which do you feel more of, right? Which is sort of coded about like, well, which are you less of, right? Right. Um, and similarly, as I mentioned, because I ran for and, and, and was elected to ultimately leadership positions, actually in both student organizations, for me, that's one of those places where it crystallizes. Both times, when I was up as a candidate for leadership in the Chicano Student Organization, and then like a semester or two later, when I was up for a leadership position in the Black Student Alliance, both times you would have these like candidate forums of Q&A and whatever. And both times in both segments, completely separate from each other, both times people said, so hypothetically, let's say one day a conflict arises between us, our organization, and the other, meaning the two communities, right? Um, which side would you choose in the, in the conflict, right? Could you represent our organization? Well, if you have a leadership role, knowing that you're an active member in the other group, right? And it was literally like, you know, what, what, what army will you choose if civil right. war comes, right? And, I, and so, again, for me, that to me was a particular challenge where, again, even then, I, I don't know that I could articulate it, but I, I felt like there was a kind of othering, right? There was a challenge there. There was a questioning of my loyalty, I guess, is right. underneath it all, right? Thankfully, I refused to let that be a barrier. And both times I sort of said, I actually, and, and I, I believe this, so it, it, it was helpful. Um, I sort of said, I actually would like to think, first of all, I think that's highly unlikely. I was like, given all the work that we do and our missions, I was like, mind you, I 
I, I didn't think about it at the time, but I realized now I'm like, I knew both organizations probably better than anybody asking the question because I was actually a member of both as opposed to like that other group. Yes, they didn't know. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I know the goals, I know the mission, I know the, what we're working towards. It's actually very aligned. So I don't know where the conflict would come up, but more importantly, I sort of said, I would actually like to think that should something unlikely like that ever come up, I actually would be uniquely positioned to be helpful as a broker, right? As a, as a go between, as a bridge between the communities to actually resolve the conflict as opposed to choosing a side and turning my back on one side. I actually might be able to say, let's bring both sides together because I understand both sides and know them. So that was one of the ways in which I, I responded to that. And that's, that's often how I responded to that kind of challenge where people sort of felt like, can you be a member of both or aren't you, aren't you less of one because you're also the other? This idea of refusing to choose a side and this idea of us being conveyors of culture, I find, um, I find it particularly useful, for example, right now in that, well, one thing, in fact, also to, to back up with an example is for, that folks might be able to understand. I've heard it said often, um, talked about in, in the black community, I suspect it's been talked about, uh, I can't think of an example now, but in the Latino community too, in that, for example, black Americans in the United States, we are required to understand our own, not required, but I mean, we understand our own culture, but we're required to understand, if you will, the white dominant culture. Yeah. And so we have to understand the norms and the aspects, whether it be in the workplace or in education or social norms, we have to understand sort of what the values and the structures and the processes are, right? The culture uh, uh, of the dominant culture, as well as our own. And we're able to be that bridge uh, in the black community. And, and, and it's unfortunate, but we are required to, to, to do both. And I find in the, in the Afro-Latino community, like we're saying, there's that added layer, right? We're also able to, to be uh, conversant, if you will, in Latino culture. And, it, and, and if we have the experience conversant in African-American culture, plus in many ways, right, the white dominant culture. And so we're able to sort of see the similarities. We're able to sort of make the connections. We're able to make the comparisons even, or to, uh, what I often tried to do was to bring best practices from one community and culture mm -hmm. to the other to sort of highlight where things were effective. Mm -hmm. I think right now in our society, this is particular critical, right? On the one hand, because we talk about sort of this conversation we're having around racial justice and recognizing uh, social inequity, particularly for black and brown folks, right? But, but really all uh, non-white folks on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have this incredible division. We have this divisiveness. We have voices that are saying they're creating kind of an us versus them mentality, this idea that, and, and oftentimes uh, it's, it's very reactionary, often very conservative folks who are often identifying sort of a white culture, um, hearkening back to a better time when uh, white culture sort of was much more uh, universal, shall we say, and even homogenous. Um, and therefore anything that's not reflective of that culture is of them, is an other, um, and is uh, problematic, is in some ways a threat. Uh, what I like to sort of say, and in fact, I, I gave a talk uh, around sort of Afro-Latino identity uh, not too long ago, and, and they asked me to sort of give it a title for like a five-minute talk, and I called it Getting from Us and Them to We. Right. The idea that there really shouldn't be an us and them. There should be a collective we that is everyone because the them is really not anybody in the United States. We're all one country. We're all one nation. We're various communities. We're various cultures and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, we're our, each other's neighbors and they shouldn't be necessarily others. Right. And that's what's often talked about in, in society about this othering, which is how you make people feel like they can be so different that, in fact, ultimately they become opponents, if not, in fact, enemies. And that's that's where the breakdown happens. We need to understand our common 
commonalities. We need to understand the ways in which we are all, in fact, one culture, one society, not one culture, but one society, one nation, if you will. And the fact that even though we have different cultures, in fact, the disparities are what separate us. The gaps are what separate us. And in fact, the struggle is to bring about equity, to bring about fairness and justice that is applied universally, where, frankly, for example, as the Black Lives Matter um, effort point out where all of the lives are in fact equally valued um that's when we actually have the ability to then not feel like it's us and them but in fact it is a universal we the idea is recognizing the humanity in each other and realizing that even though there may be differences in culture and skin tone and heritage and background um at the end of the day um that doesn't make anyone less than anyone else how do we continue to drive right what you just described um, how you're sort of uh, coming, you know, towards it and um, elevating the conversation. But how do we create a movement that supports Black Lives Matter, right? And all that's this conversation around race, equity, and the injustices that are systemic, right? How do we, you know, how does the Afro-Latinx community help? Um, What are some you know, recommendations that you would make, you know, to, to yeah. just have a greater movement? Yeah. I mean, the two things I sort of say are one, um, uh, and, and again, the, the Afro-Latino community is particularly uh, well positioned to do this. One, we need to recognize and call out um, the biases that exist in our societies and in our cultures, right? We need to acknowledge that we are not perfect and that frankly, all of us, everyone, not just white people, but in fact, everyone is, uh, if you will, infected by the pandemic that is racism, right? Mm -hmm. Is one of the ways people describe it. And so for example, particularly as we think about, again, as we're talking about racial justice right now, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and that moment in our society right now, an important piece of the puzzle to get to this universal goal is the Latino community. And again, this is happening. Thankfully, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's not something that we're, we're having to force, but in fact, people are, are voluntarily and proactively raising. We have to acknowledge that there's racism within the Latino community. And again, the Afro-Latino segment of our population is, is really well poised to, to point to that, um, to demonstrate the negative impacts of that and so on, and to be allies within the Latino community to help folks understand that we have to face and tackle the racism within our own community head on, how we as a Latino community treat our own Afro-Latino members, um, which also then plays out in terms of how we treat the African-American population, right? How we uh, engage, interact, how we buy into, um, and sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but sometimes unintentionally think that um, success or simply a better life for us, uh, the easiest, the sort of the least resistance the way of least resistance is to basically approximate whiteness as much as possible, right? Given that many of our folks in our Latin community are fairly fair-skinned, um, thinking that that's sort of a solution that 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 may make that individual's life better in the sense that they might suffer from less direct individual discrimination, but in essence, it perpetu- or allows the perpetuation of that continued discrimination for everybody else. And so saying to people, like, we have a role as an overall community to play in stamping out the racism in our own community, and as a result, stamping out the racism that we're a part of, which then ultimately hopefully leads to stamping out the racism that everybody carries on, right? That's one. Two, the other, so like it's that, it's, it's, it's recognizing and taking a stand and being proactive in, 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 in making sure that we don't contribute to the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Those of us in our community. Two, the other thing I say, and this is for really everybody, and again, I think in my experience, and I think I've, I've heard shared experiences from other folks in the Afro-Latino community, is 
um, holding up an example for folks of it's it's and I admit I recognize uh, admittedly it's not fun and it's time consuming. Well, yeah, it's time consuming. It it requires effort um, that can be a little tiring. But the reality is what I, the way I sort of summarize it summarize it is that all of us, particularly in the U.S have to do much more homework than we've mm-hmm. traditionally done. That, that we have to, in many ways, go back to school. And what I mean by that, the way I, I use that, that phrase is, in the, as I was mentioning earlier about this being conversant in the different cultures, in the Afro-Latinx community, we have our own individual communities um, or families, heritage and culture that we understand deeply. Um, and to some extent, it's often fairly easy for us to understand and to learn and to do homework on the broader Latino culture and community, given where we live in communities. But we, again, are also then uh, best suited, uh, best served if we understand the black culture and community in many ways, because we're seen to be a part of it anyway, <clears throat> and to interact with that community. But as a result, we then learn more about black culture um, than say non-black Latinos, right? Um, and so we're conversant in both. And then again, like I said, all people of color have to learn white culture. What I sort of say is to really truly get to this idea of everyone understanding and valuing and so on, the white population needs to understand the various communities of colors, culture and reality and perspective. And, 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 and again, do the homework, the studying of that to, to grasp that and to understand ways in which discrimination exists, ways in which cultural expression is, right? And just um, all of the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, And then similarly, folks in the black community, the non-Latino black community have to study and learn and understand the Latino community better, which again is not usually part of even the sort of liberation curriculum that often is pulled in. And then similarly, the Latino population has to understand the black community history and black culture and so on. Um, and, and, And there's value in terms of knowing the contributions to America, right, to American history, to sort of how the 14th and the 15th Amendment came about and the Voting Rights Act and all of these pieces and how the civil rights era led to, for example, immigration reform in the late 60s. But then there's also a piece about being able to engage with each other on a human level by understanding the pride, by understanding the cultural norms. When a person travels abroad, um, they will do the homework, albeit on a more limited basis, to make sure that they don't do faux pas, particularly in the working world, right? You make sure you don't want to do a faux pas. You don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong custom or say or do something that's offensive in that country, in that culture. In my mind, we don't take the effort to do that in the U.S., Mm -hmm. right, to make sure that we don't make a faux pas or say something that's offensive within a community here in the United States that may not be our own community. And so that's what I mean by sort of saying what we all need to do is, is frankly, like I say, go back to school, do more homework and do that lift of, of not just saying to people, we welcome them, we're open to them, we're tolerant of them, but rather sort of saying, I'm going to go out of my way to make the effort to more than meet them halfway by truly trying to understand them and learn about them. Marco, tell me a little bit about what, what do you do today? Sure. So, um, I'm sorry? Your trajectory. My trajectory. Most of my career has been in the nonprofit sector, um, the biggest chunks of which were um, mostly here in Washington, D.C. I've been here more than 25 years now. Um, And uh, uh, the first roughly half of that was actually spent at what was then the National Council of La Raza, or NCLR, which is now Unidos U.S. It's the largest Latino civil rights and advocacy organization. I actually did leadership development programs there, though, working with young people. Um, I did a stint with an organization that focuses on social entrepreneurship named Ashoka. Um, It's a global organization, and I focused on the projects and the work with young people, both in the U.S. and Latin America. Um, I had the fortune of joining the Obama administration. I uh, was there almost, I uh, was there about six years. 
um, uh, a year and a half of which with uh, the Corporation for National and Community Service, which is the federal agency that oversees AmeriCorps, uh, the MLK National Day of Service, et cetera. Um, but then four years with an office called the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanics, which was a life-changing experience. I'm, I'm incredibly proud and honored to have served in that. Um, but then I came back to the nonprofit sector doing first social entrepreneurship and, and venture philanthropy, as it's called, with an organization named New Profit um, that's based in Boston, but I was here in D.C. And then finally, uh, a year and a half ago, uh, uh, I was offered um, the, role of <clears throat> the role of president and CEO of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, uh, or CHCI. <clears throat> which is um, uh, a nonprofit organization here in D.C. that does leadership development, that develops the next generation of Latino leaders, um, particularly through internships and fellowships on Capitol Hill, working with the members of Congress, um, but also convening thought leaders in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to talk about issues facing the Latino community and the nation. Wow. <laughs> that's all I have to say is wow. And, and, you know, obviously there's this, this string, you know, that's, that's woven through, um, through that, that career path, that professional path. Um, you know, what, what are, what's next? What are, what are your goals? You know, what, what do you see? What's the vision of the future for you? I do have sort of a, a real vision, a real set of goals with the organization, which is I want to expand and then we're already on that path of expanding our, our reach, our impact in terms of leadership development. So we, the organization is 42 years old and it's been cranking out leaders who work on Capitol Hill. So we've, we, we're one of the largest sources of, of, of future staffers through the internships and fellowship programs who then folks go on to become uh, legislative staff and chiefs of staff and so on uh, in congressional offices. But uh, uh, unbeknownst to most folks over these 40 years, we've also now, our alumni have gone to all different sectors, to the private sector, to corporate America, to philanthropy, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, to the nonprofit world. Uh, and so I want to build on that because again, our, our community, I think needs so many more leaders and increasingly we've, we've, as a society, folks have come to realize that public policy actually impacts and relates to everything. Our, our, our structures mm-hmm. have been siloed for so long. This idea of the government and policy is totally separate from the private sector, right? Or is totally separate from the nonprofit world when we're now all finally realizing that that's incredibly not true. Um, and so the idea is that folks can come to D.C., learn through our experiences about public policy, but then actually become effective leaders at the local level in their community, at the state level, in the private sector, or at the global level, right? Working for multinational corporations, uh, in philanthropy, uh, 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 in the nonprofit world, you name it, um, having that grounding of public policy, but more importantly, having that grounding of leadership development means they're going to be much more effective representatives of um, influencers uh, and leaders for our entire 63 million person population, and that they're going to be sort of the vanguard, if you will, of helping our community achieve equity, of helping our community get the support and the resources and the attention that it deserves as an equal part of American society. And so for me, the idea is to grow and build that footprint and to just keep cranking out many, many more leaders so that, again, our community overall benefits, which I argue, once our community is doing better, actually the nation is going to be doing better overall. The two things are are truly uh, interchangeable. Sure. I mean, it's it's this topic of intersectionality, right? Yeah. And, and so we're living it. So it's our it's almost our responsibility to um, to educate, but also um, you know uh, hold people accountable for for recognizing that and understanding that. And I think that's that's certainly a theme that I'm hearing a lot 
yep. of uh, these days is, you know, sort of grappling with that intersectionality and, and how we're so um, well positioned really to, to, um, to speak from experience um, and really force, you know, force the conversation, force that learning. Um, you know, I'm also hearing a lot about people coming to terms with particularly the Afro-Latino community um, being black, right? And, and having that um, um, come to fruition later in their lives, right? High school, college, you know, I think you, you know, didn't have that experience. I think you, because of, you yeah. know, your, your, your journey. Um, but I'm hearing a lot of people going, you know, it wasn't until college that, you know, I realized that I was black, you know, it wasn't until, you know, later in life, something happened, you know, and, and I think, look, identity is a journey, as I stated earlier, you know, you, we go through phases, right? When I become, a, when I became a mom, you know, I, my, my identity changed, you know, and, and as my kids get older and all that, but tell me about that experience. Um, also, you know, I am so curious about, you know, how do you bring yourself to work? You know, there's this whole concept of, um, you know, people don't, you know, go to work and showing up, showing all of their layers, right? But when they go home, you, you know, they're, they're, you know, and they're with their families, you know, they're speaking Spanglish or, you know, there's a, there's this dynamic version of them that they're, you know, it's, it's not coming through in the office. Um, and then when you're out in the outside world, you know, people see you, they go, oh, you're black, so I'm going to treat you that way. Tell me a little bit about one, you know, identification and then just, just, you know, how do you sort of address that, the challenges of each of those worlds that we're all living in? Yeah. So uh, on the first front, um, this question of identity, I, I would say, you're right. I mean, I obviously had a different, a slightly different experience and a different journey given my own particular heritage, but what I find what I'm hearing and being a part of conversations with folks, particularly in the Afro-Latinx community, um, the way I might summarize it uh, or explain it to other folks is essentially prior to now, and it's just barely beginning now, I would argue, um, but prior to now, um, there was almost no conversation about race within the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And so... And so the idea, like, and, and to the point where, in fact, um, there are terms, the, the only ways in which race was referred to at times was often in this superficial, trivial um, way of, like, terms of endearment, not really understanding that there is actually sometimes some real offensiveness underneath it right so morena, morena, morena. <laughs> like that's it and everybody's like well it's just skin and trigueño and so like it's all the shades and therefore people are like it's all okay right but it's like negrito was used in many more significantly negative ways in latin america it wasn't it's not purely a term of endearment but that's it right and so there was never this idea of understand and and arguably one of the things too about latin america is um the 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 collective uh, story that sometimes borders on myth of of mixture, right? Mestizaje is the one more often used. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that the cultures all sort of came together creates a story of sort of saying we're a mix, we're all mixed, we know we're mixed, and the product is the mix, and no one talks about the ingredients in the mix. And so in many ways, similarly, the indigenous population, the indigenous culture, the same thing. There are terms about calling someone Indio. Mm -hmm. um, is not uh, is not uh, a praise, right? Is not a positive thing in, in Spanish and Latin America. But it, it sort of was again. People would sort of use it jokingly or whatever, and 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 um, 
And so it was sort of allowed and accepted. And again, there were no deeper conversations in school. Maybe it shows up in literature, although I was never exposed to it, right? But certainly in common conversation, you never had that. And so as a result, folks who were darker skin in Latin America, that's it. That's all they ever got was that they were darker skin, but they were Latinos. And so there was never the sense of they're black. Right. And similarly, again, because of the mixture thing and because of the shades thing, unlike the, right. And that's the thing to distinct to remember also. The United States has itself created these actual fictional, but racial categories, these separate that are distinct. And like there's a bright line and the one drop rule of, of, of uh, black Americans is, mm-hmm. is the rule that was applied at one point in law and always in practice that just having a little bit of blackness means you are black yep. and therefore you are either black or not, right? And there is no sort of kind of, whereas the thing in Latin America is because of the gradations, like at what point do you cross over into black? At what point are you not fully black? Are you just sort of black, right? And other countries have Brazil, South Africa, India even, they've had this gradation thing. And sometimes I think in Brazil, I'm told there was like 16 racial categories and people were codified into one of the 16 based on skin tone, right? Which is kind of ludicrous, but in some ways at least at least there were 16 as opposed to right now, again, in many other places in Latin America where it's just this fluid thing. And so in my mind, that's part of why you have this awakening, this awareness as an adult about blackness, particularly because in the U S right. Because again, in Latin America, you would have just been a darker skin, Mexican, Peruvian, Colombian, whatever it was, the Dominican, Puerto Rican. And it was at the, and nationality was the piece that was the the common tie. And the only thing you talked about, whether you were or not Puerto Rican, whether you were or not Dominican, right. Right. Et cetera, Cuban, um, Whereas in the U.S. it was like, are you black or aren't you? And right. you must be one or the other. And that's, I think, the, the the realization that many folks have had in the Afro-Latinx community and that they're like, within my culture, I'm that culture. I'm of that origin. I'm therefore Latino as, as I understand the way society teaches it. But why are people calling me black? And they realize it. To the U.S.'s right. eyes, you've got to check a category, right? When the census comes around, you pick up. There's no like in between. There's no, I mean, now you can do both. But like, again, people mean that means two separate things. It's not like right. a mixture. Again, the mixture idea doesn't exist in the U.S. And so that's, that's, I think, what comes from that. And again, now that we're having much more honest conversations about race, certainly today, but even again, when you reach adulthood, when you get to college, when you had to fill out these forms, it's when you were confronted with that question in ways that growing up, you might never. You know, I just use myself as an example. You know, when I'm at work, people know I'm a Latina, right? Most people, um, unless I encounter a new set of people, they'll just assume I'm black. When I go home, you know, my family knows I'm Latina. So, you know, I talk to my mom, Spanish, you know, like there's this whole nother side of me that that my coworkers don't see. And then when I'm out and about, I mean, I've experienced some amazing, uh, and I don't mean in a good way, um, situations where, you know, I am questioned because people assume that I'm black and, and, and I am black, right. I'm, but you know what their stereotype of what that means. And so like, that's, that's hard to, to cope with and deal with. Right. And so just curious about, you know, how, how that's played out for you and, and, you know, I guess any advice even from, from, from your perspective. Yeah. yeah. In terms of showing up. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's certainly tricky, right? I mean, I, I've been very lucky in that I've 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 had great opportunities and and I've worked at great workplaces that have been very sort of either diverse themselves already or 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 making concerted efforts to be inclusive and diverse. And I suspect there's some chicken and egg aspect of that, and I probably chose those places because they were like that as opposed to choosing choosing to be a pioneer. But um, what I would say is that I mean, I, so I think again that that's where that kind of um, 
cultural broker, bridge builder kind of function can be helpful in that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I would argue is to get to the reality we want, um, sadly, I think there's still going to be a ton of education that has to be done by us and I think again and and recognizing understanding it's been voiced I think quite well that it's absolutely unfair that it's essentially you know in fact it's referred to I think as the black tax um, in in university in academia right that that black professors black administrators have to do their job which is like you know classic civilization literature or archaeology or whatever and they have to do the whole like yeah supporting black students or explaining the black experience or talking about black retention or whatever it is on top of that and they don't get extra pay for that right they don't get a bonus in their salary and so that's a piece of the piece uh, of the puzzle um and so in many ways again it falls to us to do the educating to the folks not from our culture about our culture about our perspective to interrupt the stereotypes and sort of the 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 um offensive or, or um, ignorant remarks that people make and so on. And again, it shouldn't be that burden on us. But in my mind, until people get the training they need, until you have more professionals, until you have more people who can step in in that way, I think in the absence of that, I sort of say we need to do it because it, it at least has the chance of reducing those number of offensive comments in your comments going forward if you at least point them out, even though, again, it shouldn't necessarily be part of your job responsibility. So I encourage people to try to show up. Now, the the key thing I, I think that's complex about it is, um, again, th- reading the room, right? Knowing how to navigate the culture, right? So showing up as your full self, uh, in my mind, doesn't mean like ignoring the dominant culture right? and simply saying, my culture is different from the dominant culture. And so what? Like, I'm like, if you are one of the few then you've got to navigate that and introduce that in ways that that isn't quite so shocking to folks. Because again, sadly, they're in control. And if they're the majority and or they have the power, if it's your bosses, et cetera, it's not as simple to simply say like, this is me, take it or leave it. Well, they might leave it, right? They might sort of say, no, sorry, you don't, you know, and then they'll, they'll hide behind things like it's not a good fit and whatever, which we know has been often sadly code for bias. But the reality is, um, again, until you can fix it or until you can prove actual deliberate bias or discrimination, um, it's not as as easy. But so in my mind, the thing is to find a way to be that ambassador, right? To be diplomatic about helping people understand and bring them along and get them more exposure to our culture, to our reality, so that we can show up more comfortably. I mean, I definitely don't um, support, and and I don't think anybody does, but I mean, I I want to deliberately say, explicitly say that I think people should not have to hide any part of who they are, should not hold back. It should not be an acceptable kind of workplace um, uh, focus. People should always be able to bring their full selves to the workplace and need to have that always as a goal. They need to have that as, as an objective. And I think workplaces need to be thinking consciously about ways in which often it's unintentional more than intentional that they're actually making people feel like they can't be their full selves, right? That they can't, I mean, there are still some places that are just fully biased um, and that don't want people to be their full selves, but oftentimes groups and organizations and and employers think they're a welcoming place, think they're inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they're so, by virtue of just simply being so homogenous, a person like us and Afro-Latinx, who's often one of the very few folks in the, in the workplace, um, feel inhibited, feel uh, uncomfortable trying to necessarily bring our full selves. I have always tried to, again, in part, in many ways, it's not surprising because I went into the field 
directly and indirectly of education. So I think of it always as like life is a learning process and, and there's always opportunities to learn and to educate others. And so I think about sort of my own self, my journey, my identity, my experience as being kind of potentially uh, teachable moments for folks, right? And so yep. just to give you a, a funny or something illustrative example of that of, of, of that aspect. So as I mentioned, my dad's Jamaican, my mother's Mexican. My family's fully bilingual. Everybody in my immediate family speaks both English and Spanish. My dad, in fact, because Jamaica was a British colony, was a big fan of, of Shakespeare, right? And so on. I am named for Mark Anthony from the Julius Caesar play, Shakespearean <laughs> play, right? All of which is a long way of saying my entire life since I was born, when my father, mother, or two older sisters speak to me in English, I am Mark. <laughs> when they speak to me in Spanish, I am Marco. And it makes all the sense in the world to us. But in the United States still in 2020, that confuses people. People still are like, which is it? Mark or Marco, right? And so very early on when I got into the working world as I got out of college, and similarly because uh, 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 visually people may just assume I'm a black man and nothing else, I deliberately said, even though I've always I'm most comfortable being referred to as Mark when people speak English. I deliberately said, I'm going to be Marco in the professional world. I'm going to make sure it's always Marco, especially because Davis, like that doesn't help either. Um, so I was like, it's got to be Marco because then people, that's a moment where people sort of go, it's Marco. There's something more to that story, even though there are African-Americans who are named Marco by their parents. It's not as common. And so my point was, it's a, and I pronouncing it right to say Marco, not just Marco, so that people go, what's going on there? And I sort of, you know, then they realize I'm Latino, right? I'm not just African-American. And that can even be an opening to a conversation. And Absolutely. so for me, again, it's, it's, I don't advise this to everybody. I know people react differently, but for me, I, maybe I don't welcome, but I'm not troubled by when people sort of say, what are you, right? Especially if they say it inartfully or like, where are you from? You know, I don't, I agree that I'm like, I was born and raised in New York. I make sure to clarify that, but I sort of understand what they mean. And for me, that's a teachable moment to say to them, yes, I am Mexican and Jamaican. I am Afro-Latino, I, right? And, I, and yet I was born and raised in New York and yet I'm fully American. And so you should understand all of that is who I am. And therefore you might suddenly discover something new that you didn't know. For example, that there are Afro-Latinos in the United States, right? right. And that starts a conversation and a path that maybe benefits them and their perspective and experience more than if they had simply been like, I don't know how to ask that and therefore I'm going to leave it alone. It's a balance, right? You think you have to, you know, you, you to your point, you can't walk in over, you have to read the room, you have to kind of, you know, be aware, right? And, and know where that boundary is. But absolutely, I agree that um, we're in a position of power. Yes. Um, absolutely. I think about that every day and I, and I live that, right? But I think a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, I think yes. I read a stat that it's 76% of Latinos do not bring their full self to work. That's a big... Yeah. Well, to be fair, um, it's among the highest among Latinos, but actually there was a study done... I think by Deloitte, um, there was somebody, it was a study done that basically the phenomenon is referred to as covering and it actually ended up being a really useful when they do like diversity trainings and so on. A lot of people refer to this because it was really actually interesting in that they found to some extent, to varying levels, almost everybody in some way, shape or form covers, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it's actually something that's fairly universally relatable um, mm -hmm. in that, for example, when you have an, uh, a workplace that has, for example, lots of either private school and or if not Ivy League graduates, someone who went to a state college might cover and feel insecure, right? When you're in a big city, someone who grew up in a rural area, in a rural low-income area, might, and again, regardless of race or ethnicity, can feel uncomfortable and they themselves might 
cover as a result and like not talk about that aspect of themselves or pretend or right and hide it, et cetera. Obviously the LGBTQ community has had to sadly cover it right at times in history and so on. And so that's a, a concept that, and, and I find often that's really enlightening and helpful for folks, for example, in our community, in the Afro-Latino community, in the Latino community, because realize you're not alone sometimes in feeling that insecurity. Other people feel it too. But the issue, as you said, which I think is super important to remind people is you have power mm-hmm. and, and, and it's possible for you to retain it and not give away that power, even though it might feel like people are disempowering you. Like you can find the power in yourselves and resist that and simply say, I'm not going to allow them to make me feel less than just because I'm the only one in the room, right? And realize maybe I'm the only one in the room, which means I have more to show people than everybody else here because I've got something new, a different perspective, a new uh, experience to come from. So terminology in our community right now is also one that I would argue in some ways is kind of in flux. Um, There's not a universal um, uh, consensus around it. It's evolving and it depends. And ultimately, like I was saying, identity is ultimately very, very personal. And so it really... Uh, boils down to sort of people choosing. And and at the moment, again, like I said, there's various segments. One example I use, again, having the unique opportunity of having moved in both communities that I point out to people is I am old enough to remember um, the late 80s um, when the rise of the term African-American came around. There was actually really heated debate in the black community about whether or not to use the term black or African-American. And in fact, right now, I believe the term black is actually gaining more uh, currency popularity because it, it incorporates beyond just the unique U.S. version, but it's sort of a more global, right? So black people in England and black people obviously in Africa and black people in Latin America, the idea of black actually becomes a more uh, inclusive term. But I remember very clearly like there was heated intellectual largely, right? It was either civil rights leaders or university folks who were talking about it, but but it was there was actual debate. There was actual pros and cons and people strongly opposed to either using black anymore or using African-American, right? When it was a relatively new term. And so what I I say to people is that the the concept now um, of Latino, Latina, Latinx is in fact a similar kind of space. The the concept is important to note so that people understand where it comes from. It's not purely a question of style uh, or choice. Latinx first came around as an attempt to be rec- to recognize and to be inclusive of people who are non-binary. Right? Latino is ge- the, the the Spanish language is gendered, and as a result, Latino means male, Latina means female, and it's both gendered and patriarchal such that. Um, when you have a group of 19 women and one man, uh, the term for that group is Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. If you have that one man and 20 women, I de- then it's Latinas. And only if it's all 20 is it Latinas, right? And so people were like, A, that's problematic. And B, as we know in, in our community, as in other communities, there are people who are non-binary, who do not choose to identify as either male or female. Um, and the term doesn't allow for that. And so Latinx was created as a way to be all-encompassing and to be recognizing of that. As a result, there are people who themselves identify as Latinx, often themselves non-binary or as a show of solidarity for non-binary people. There are people who support the concept of Latinx and the term of Latinx as an overall inclusive term. But for example, as in my case, I identify as Latino because I'm male. I identify as male. And so Latino is applicable and not incorrect. Um, But there are people who either don't, and and the, the term Latinx is relatively new. It's 
been around for just a few years and it's really sort of surged in just the last couple of years. It's most um, known and used in the university setting and increasingly in the last year or two in like marketing uh, in corporate America um, as a way because they've sort of learned and to been told that that's the broadest term. Um, but there's still a whole lot of people among the 63 million Latinos in the United States who have never heard Latinx before. And so they're not familiar with it. And literally, I, I still run into people who are like, I thought it was a typo, right? Because they haven't heard this story, this background. They don't know where it comes from. They just suddenly see it used somewhere. And they're like, what is that? Because it's not something popular yet. And mind you, there's even the political, as we know, the political diversity in our community where there are folks who are not uh, – who are homophobic, frankly, right? Who are not LGBTQ friendly, who therefore are not supportive of the non-binary population and as a result sort of hide behind the idea of like, don't change the language, right? And and, and keep it the same. And there are people who are progressive um, and who support the idea of inclusiveness, but who also don't like the X because it's actually hard to um, conjugate, right? And it's actually hard to pronounce in Spanish. Latinx, uh, it's hard to to to, to do you then degender all the words in Spanish? Do you just do people like, so it's evolving is the long uh, answer right now. I, I would sort of say, um, which is why I tend to choose and say and refer to, as you might've seen in our conversation, I tend to say Latino, Latina, Latinx, meaning I recognize and, and, and accept and, and, and embrace all of the terms, whichever one people use, knowing that we haven't yet all agreed and landed on that term. I think there may, and there's even in Latin America, the last point I'll say, um, Instead of the X, there's an E, and I think sometimes an I, but an E I've seen in Latin American Spanish, Latine, meaning non-gendered, um, uh, but it's, it's, so it's the equivalent of the X, but they, mm -hmm. they uh, use the E as the ending instead of the X, right? So it, all of which is to say, like, the jury is still out. Like, we haven't yet landed on one, and there isn't one right way to refer to our population, but it is useful and helpful if people understand all that goes into all of those different choices. And the term Hispanic is actually still used, for example, in the eastern part of the United States just as much um, as Latino. And even though there's been some now subtle distinction around there, um, again, it's one of those where, again, it, it, it's mostly a, 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 a personal preference as opposed to a right or a wrong or people truly, truly signifying. Uh, the vast majority of people are not trying to signify something specific if they say use Hispanic versus Latino. It's often just what's most common where they are. You're also seeing a generational yeah, exactly. uh, you know, element coming into play as well, right? Older generation in um, in the United States um, identify or feel more closely aligned to saying they're Hispanic. And it depends. I mean, if you're if you are coming, if you're an immigrant, right? You may just say I'm Mexican or exactly. I'm you know exactly. country or, yep. or Dominican, you know. But but if you grew up and you know and and most of your life has been spent in the United States, you associate with Hispanic because that's what you sort of grew up with. And whereas the younger generation, you know, are you know they're a little bit more open, right? And they and they want to change the the lexicon. You know, they really want to change it and elevate it and make it more inclusive. So you do have some of that coming into play as well. And and it's also geographic, though. I want to say right. So California, you find Latino, Latina, and probably Latinx. Much, much more. In Texas, you find Hispanic still much, much more. In the East Coast, New York and Florida, you find Hispanic much more than any of the. And then the one of the funny things I always like to point out to people is that there's still folks and me having grown up in the New York area. There are still folks in the New York area who slang. But again, like it, it's fairly common usage, actually still use Spanish 
And actually, they don't mean from Spain. They actually mean yeah, Latino, yeah. Latina, Hispanic, but they actually say, right? that Spanish kid, that Spanish lady. Yeah. And they actually, that woman is Cuban, but they mean, they, and that's because in New York, that's what people used to say going back 100 years. And it's just sort of stuck in the common uh, lexicon. Lisa, I don't want to take up more of your time. I have like one really challenging question for you. Okay. Uh-oh. One really tough one. So, and I didn't send this one your way. So I, I'm sorry that you're going to get a chance to prep, but um, is it merengue? Is it bachata? Is it um, regatón or salsa, I guess? Or maybe there's some other one in there that I'm not sure of. Which one's your favorite? I would, nowadays, uh, for me, I would have to say reggaeton. I think, you know, and maybe I wonder, that's interesting. We should, we should take a poll of Mark. I mean, for me, the pieces uh, of them all, you know, I, well, I shouldn't rank them because I'll probably get in trouble regardless. But the interesting thing for me about reggaeton that I love um, is much like my identity, that it has the Latino culture, the Latino component to it, um, but it actually has real ties, de- de- deliberate ties, both to the Caribbean, mind you, to the reggae part, but, but to hip hop. Right. And the connection to hip hop. And so for me, like, it's actually a really good fusion of I feel like my my identity, my experience. Um, and that may be why it speaks to me the most, because I feel like I get fed in lots of different ways from that kind of music. I mean, the, the challenging part for me has always been like I love salsa and merengue. I've come to love, love bachata now that I moved to D.C. because I didn't grow up with bachata in New York at all. Um, but like that leaves out like rancheras and mariachis, which I also like absolutely oh, love to do and speaks true. to me, right? And and cumbia for that matter, which is yeah. big in both Mexico and in like Colombia and other parts, right? So I certainly love all genres of Latin music for sure. And it's important to note that like, I think there's something for everyone, um, ballenato, but, um, <laughs> but reggaeton for me, I think stands out. I, I think for me, that's, for me, that's the most fun in terms of a party environment, so. I um anytime I hear a good merengue, I'm sorry, but like I love it all too, by the way. But I have to get up and dance. And I remember since you know I was very young, um, maybe it's because part of my life was spent in Dominican Republic. I don't know, but um, I I think all of the you know all of it is um, it's beautiful and and um, gets you moving and and you know fun. So and the beauty about the arts is right. You can have all of it, yeah. and it's personal taste. And you, there doesn't have to be none has to be better than the other. It's not a thankfully it's not sports where there has to be a champion. It's 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 the <laughs> arts where all of it is is welcome. Um, but it also speaks to how the depth of the Latino culture yes. and um and the you know like, and the nuance. Yeah, and what we bring, you know, to, to, to the table and, and um, you know, what I think is really special, you know, the, you know, there's so many other things, right? It's a warm, you know, community. We, we're, we love people. We love relationships. So I think, you know, that ties into that. You know, the music is such a important thing. We're not even going to talk about food, but. Um, well, and bring it, the, bring, one thing, bring it all full circle since the topic of this is Afro-Latinx. I mean, that's the other piece that, again, similarly in our culture, people don't talk explicitly about, but like you look at salsa, you look at merengue and it's like, there are African beats at the root of that stuff, right? And it's like, we've conveniently not realized that like, there is a very direct line when you look at the, and the instruments, right? And the, the, the importance and significance of the drum, like, hello, right? And so that's a nice way for folks to realize like that is 
unquestionably not a new and or different part of our culture. It's at the heart of what is Latino culture. So true. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, you know, please, we love to have you back. Um, we're obviously going to, you know, continue on with this series. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that when folks hear this this conversation, they're going to want to get to know more of you um, and reach, reach out to you. How, how can they connect? For sure. For sure. Well, simple enough. Um, our website is, is just chci.org. So that's easy enough. And we're on social media on all the channels. Uh, almost, almost all of them were at CHCI. If you start by doing that search, you'll, you'll come up with us and reach out and feel free to engage and connect with me. And certainly I'm happy to be back anytime. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Marco Davis and tuning into our podcast. Look out for our next episode and please check us out on social media. Our handle is Ondas Podcast and spread the word. Let's elevate our Afro-Latin voices. Mucho amor. Hasta la próxima.